0: Family and friends, and those of you with whom I serve, know how much I love the Senate and that I will love my work until my last day here, and that I will leave here with unabashed confidence in the Senate's ability to weather storms and to meet the nation's needs.
1: Sad day here in the state of Michigan as we begin to wrap our minds around the idea that former U.S. Senator Carl Levin has died. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Steven Henderson and as always, I'm really glad that you have joined us. There are really not a lot of words that come easily to describe the impact, the impression that Carl Levin leaves on this community. Some of that is about longevity, of course. This is somebody who was in public service for many decades here and was in the Senate for 36 years, more than anyone else in the state of Michigan's history. But it's also about the substance of the time that he spent, the things that he did, the things that he said. I've known Carl Levin for a really long time, and every memory I have of him is Wrapped in this idea of statesmanship and grace. The idea of public service above everything else. He didn't just talk about those things. He did them all the time. Never, never wavered. It's not an understatement to say that we just don't have people like that in large number, not just here in the city of Detroit or in the state of Michigan, but in the United States. Carl Levin really did stand out, and in many ways, he stood alone. We're going to spend the hour today lifting up the legacy of Carl Levin. And I want to say that again, we're going to spend the hour lifting up the legacy of Carl Levin. You know, death right now, I think, is playing a lot of tricks on us in our minds. The last year and a half has been all about random and unexplained death, tragic death of people who we would never have expected to lose at the time we lost them. And I think in some ways that's kind of robbed us of the ability to recognize that when some people leave us, yes. It's sad. Yes, we'll miss them. But the most important part of their passing is the chance to honor who they were and what they did. We really haven't had a chance to do that a, a whole lot during the pandemic. And so today, I want to make sure that while we note that Carl's passing is sad and we will miss him, and of course, our politics have missed him since he retired that he's leaving for us something tremendous, something extraordinary, and something worth celebrating, not just now, but long into the future. Later in the hour, we're going to hear from some people who knew Carl Levin really well, including his long, long, longtime friend, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell. But first, I spoke with Carl last in March, right here on this show, about his new memoir, titled Getting to the Heart of the Matter, My 36 Years in the Senate. We're going to start today by listening back to that conversation, which was not just about his book, not just about his long career, but about the way he framed that career, the way he thought about public service, the way he became a statesman. There's a lot in this conversation about Levin's memories from his time as office and his philosophy about public service. But most of all, it is just vintage essential, Carl Levin. Here it is. Senator, welcome to Detroit today.
0: Well, Stephen, it's always great to be with you and to have known you all these years.
1: Yes. Let's talk about that the that transition you made. From the Detroit City Council to the U.S. Senate—that's an incredible—that's an incredible jump. It's something we wouldn't see happen today in politics, I don't think. But, but talk about what made you run for the U.S. Senate. You were the president of the Detroit City Council. Uh, why did you decide that Washington was where you wanted to be?
0: Well, I had a lot, a lot of people that were urging me to run, uh, feeling that by uh, experience in government, uh, even though it was a local level, uh, would be, uh, a contribution to the, uh, legislative process and to the nation. Hopefully I had learned a lot of lessons on the city council, which, uh, I found very, very useful in Washington. And there was a number of people who, uh, thought I could, uh, take those uh, lessons and uh, make a contribution. And, Including my wife Barbara and a uh, number of other good friends.
1: And uh, when you got to uh, the Senate, uh, you you couldn't have known then how much influence you'd have over the chamber. You couldn't have known you'd stay for for thirty six years. Give us, give me a sense of those early years and how you decided to kind of frame out the time that you would have in the in the U.S. Senate. Well, i
0: made uh, a couple basic decisions uh, early on in the in the senate uh, first of all i uh, decided i would get involved in, in oversight work investigations of the shortfalls of our society uh, including the shortfalls of uh, uh, the uh, big banks and wall street also the corporations that had been avoiding paying taxes uh, through various kinds of gimmicks at the most profitable corporations there's a huge tax and wealth gap in this country and i wanted people to in government and out of government to be uh, held accountable and to hopefully uh, be pushed in the right direction to do some good for the for the public for the community not just uh, for their own pocketbooks i also made a decision to, uh, and so the the bottom line there is that there was a subcommittee that was offered to me that was an oversight subcommittee when I first got to Washington. And I decided to take that offer from one of my colleagues um, instead of a couple other uh, chairmen who wanted me to join their committees. But what I also wanted to do is to uh, learn something about the Military and the armed services because, uh, I had not served, uh, in uniform and I wanted to learn a lot more because the issues of, of war and peace, how we spend our dollars, how we maintain our security, uh, how we support our military, uh, where they, uh, are doing important things in terms of Hopefully, uh, spreading our values around the world and protecting our security. And so, I wanted to learn more about the military, and so I uh, asked to join the Armed Services Committee, and I was appointed to that committee, which is uh, also a uh, kind of an unusual way for uh, many people to begin who haven't had mm-hmm. experience in the Armed Services. So, that was a couple of important decisions I made right off the bat.
1: Mm. And you've said in the past that you wanted to govern less on the whims of public opinion and more based on your own values and principles. And you would leave it to voters to decide whether to send you back to Washington or not after each after each term. They did uh, many times, but that approach to governing seems really rare, if not non-existent today. Uh, how important do you think it was to your success that you took that approach uh, and, and decided to serve the constituents in that way?
0: Well, I, I went to Washington believing that uh, people, particularly in elected office, are fiduciaries. And that when it comes to Voting, the people ought to listen to the various sides of an issue. Uh, they ought to not be arrogant and decide that they're going to, you know, ignore what uh, others think and what others have written about and studied. But to kind of get, uh, be aware of the pros and cons of issues. But then, when it comes to voting, to do what is best for your people, whether or not it's popular. Uh, I'm not a populist. I don't uh, think that the responsible the responsibility of elected officials who vote uh, is to uh, hold their finger up to the wind and see which way is blowing or to take public opinion polls. Public opinion obviously is important, but it's more important, I think, for people who vote on issues to vote for what they believe is best for their people, even though it might be unpopular. I'm sorry. Even though, yeah, even though that vote might be unpopular at the time. And I, I carried that belief uh, to Washington. I cast a number of very unpopular votes at the time. I voted against the Bush uh t- The first I voted against the Reagan tax cut, mm-hmm. which I thought favored wealthy people. And then the uh, first Bush uh, tax cut I thought also had that same problem. And I'm willing to look at, the, obviously, the tax burden that middle-income people have uh and lower-income people have and try to reduce the burden. But I'm not willing to reduce taxes for wealthy people just to give them – a greater uh, greater wealth than they already have, so that's uh, you know i i just uh, I believe that that's the responsibility it 's a what I call a fiduciary duty uh, to uh, represent people in that manner and I survived a number of uh unpopular votes mm-hmm. I voted against the Iraq war, mm-hmm. which was very popular, believe it or not now people realize what a a lot of people realize what a mistake it was,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: particularly with the second Bush uh, war where he invaded, essentially, Iraq and took uh, <laughs> took over the country in many, many ways. And we've paid the price in a lot of ways for that decision.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, you also developed a reputation as somebody who could work and did work. Across the aisle, that you know, as progressive as uh, your politics were, you were able to compromise a fair amount and and be able to work with the Republican colleagues. Right now in Washington, that is maybe the rarest of uh, of qualities. We just don't see uh, a lot of people willing to or 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 able to do that. And I wonder what you make of. That political climate what are you what are you watching uh in in Washington that the rest of us are seeing and and sort of uh taking away from from where our politics are at this point
0: yeah, well, I learned something very early when I was president of the city council in Detroit. You have to learn to work with people who have different views from yours, and if you're not willing to do that and to compromise, to gain maybe half a loaf or three-quarters of a loaf instead of the whole thing, uh, then you're not willing to govern. You really don't believe in, in governing if you're not willing to work towards a, a goal and be uh, able to work with people who have very different views, who come from different uh, uh, political backgrounds, who are different uh, racial, ethnic, uh, religious groups, um, come from different religious backgrounds, in other words. You've got to do that. I I learned to do that on the city council. Hmm. There were only uh, nine of us, but there was a lot of differences in backgrounds in those nine people. And it was a very important lesson. And I wish they'd learned it in Washington. There's just too many people starting with the Tea Party folks who came to office and they their attitude was, uh, I didn't come here to compromise. I came here to get my views in force. Well, <laughs> uh, that's, we've seen the outcome of this. It's reached a, 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 just an absurd point now where there's some people who just simply, they want to attack the other side, they want to make speeches, about uh, what they need to accomplish. But the speeches leave no room for working with other people to achieve a common goal. And I don't care if that common goal is health care or education, infrastructure, uh, beating the virus that we're now plagued with. Um, Whatever the goal is, there's so many common goals that everybody, just almost 95% of the public would agree with that you ought to be able to find ways to take steps towards achieving those goals, Hmm. even though it's not exactly the way that you would do it if you were a dictator.
1: Hmm. Hmm. So, So I am also very curious about another debate that's taking place in the Senate, Right now, which is about the future of, of the filibuster. Uh, we had your nephew, Andy Levin, on the program a few weeks ago. He's a member of Congress now, uh, and he was talking about how you and he disagree about uh, the future of the filibuster. He thinks it should go, uh, he thinks it's, it's uh, an impediment to, to, to good governing. Uh, I know, as somebody who really cherishes the institution of the Senate and its traditions, you have a different view. Tell us. Tell us what that is. Well,
0: first, uh, the filibuster is not the reason for the gridlock. The re- The reason for the gridlock is that the people who are putting forth a proposal, like the ones that Andy and I believe in, mm-hmm. are, uh, are pushing it. First of all, they're not going to succeed because the filibuster is not going to be ended. But that's, in a way, secondary. They're... they're they're saying the the words, get rid of the filibuster, but they're not willing to push the people who are threatening to filibuster to actually go out and filibuster. Force them to do it. It's mm-hmm. inconvenient to force the, the people who threaten to filibuster to just go ahead and do it. But it's, it's vital that if people threaten to filibuster, that they – shouldn't just uh, get their way. They shouldn't just be saying, okay, we won't, do, we, we won't go there and try to get that done. And that's what's happened too often, is that people who simply threaten to filibuster uh, get away with it. Mm-hmm. They're not forced to filibuster. To actually do it. Yeah. actually do it. And, and let me tell you the reason, and I tried this when I was there. I voted against the so-called nuclear option which uh, violated the rules in order to uh, put in place a, a rule which would allow a majority vote on judges. Look what we ended up with a couple of Supreme Court judges mm-hmm. that never would have been confirmed by the Senate if the people who uh, were pushing those judges were forced to filibuster because they did not have uh, 60 votes. To uh, to confirm those judges, so the 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 product of the way in which the filibuster was um, eliminated, uh, relative just to judges, not to legislation, but the product was what we saw in the Supreme Court. So, just I believe very strongly, and I argued at the time, make the filibusters filibuster. Make them take weekends. Let them stand up for weeks on end. They won't do it. Put them to the test. But unless you're willing, unless you're willing to actually force people who threaten the filibuster to filibuster, then, then to simply say I want to get rid of the filibuster uh, are just hollow words. Mm. It's it's not going to happen for a number of reasons. Uh, but it also means that you're not willing to inconvenience yourself to have to at least have one of your members who oppose the filibuster to hang around to make sure that the people who are standing up for days in a row uh, don't try to pull off uh, tricks which would uh, uh, undermine the effort to force them to filibuster. Mm. And by the way the filibuster, the presence of that possibility is one of the only sources of compromise. Since you have to get 60 votes in order to overcome a filibuster, it has led to lots of compromises, which otherwise would not take place, because you got to reach to get those 60 votes, that supermajority.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, the book is Getting to the Heart of the Matter, My 36 Years in the Senate, Written by Michigan's longest-serving U.S. Senator, Carl Levin. Uh, Senator, it is always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for being with us. Stephen, thanks
0: for your, your long
1: service, too. <laughs> Thank you. That was my conversation with former U.S. Senator Carl Levin from just March of this year. Levin died yesterday at the age of 87. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to hear from a longtime friend of Carl Levin's, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell. We, of course, also want to hear from you. What are your memories of Senator Carl Levin and his 36 years in office serving Michigan in Washington? What do you think stands out when you think about his service in the Senate? Also give us a call if you remember when Carl was president of the Detroit City Council back in the 1970s. As always, the number here on the phones is 313 577 1019. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to Facebook or to Twitter and uh, put your the comments there. We'll be right back with more right today. Today on 101.9 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are spending the hour today lifting up the legacy of Carl Levin, who, at 36 years in the U.S. Senate, was the longest-serving member of the Senate from the state of Michigan. He died yesterday at the age of 87. We want to hear from you uh, this hour about your memories. Of Carl Levin. He touched so many lives here in Southeast Michigan in particular. He was a native Detroiter, uh, somebody who helped found the Public Defender's Office here in the city of Detroit, and then later ran to be a member of the Detroit City Council, became president of the Detroit City Council, and then ran for the U.S. Senate. There are so many people uh, who remember the things that Carl Levin did both before he was in the U.S. Senate Uh, of course, and the things that he has done since. We'd love to hear what those memories are and how you will think of him going into the future, how you will think of other politicians in the future because of the things that Carl Levin did. In so many ways, I think he was uh, a tablet for statesmanship and public service. Uh, Is that something that you're using to judge politicians as they raise their hands now? to be in public office uh, here or in Washington. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll try to include you in the show uh, that way. Uh, I want to welcome a very familiar voice on Detroit Today to this conversation and also someone who was a very close friend of Carl Levin's. Congresswoman Debbie Dingell is a Democrat from Dearborn who represents Michigan's 12th congressional district. Uh, Debbie, welcome back to the show.
2: Good morning, Stephen. It's good to talk to you, but I wish we weren't talking about the subject we're talking about.
1: Yeah, no, and and of course, uh, first I need to extend condolences uh, to you because... You and your husband, John, uh, were not just longtime friends with Carl, but with with the entire Levin family. And of course, Carl and John served many, many, many years together uh, and were respectively the longest serving senator and the longest serving U.S. rep in Michigan history. So let's start by talking a bit about the relationship between the Dingles and the Levens and not only what it meant for both families, but what it's meant uh, to Michigan uh, over these many years.
2: Well, you know, the the Dingle-Levin friendship goes back for almost 100 years now. Uh, Carl and Sandy's uncle was Ted Levin, who was a distinguished jurist, Mm -hmm. uh, a great lawyer, and John's father actually recommended him uh, to be a federal judge. Ted Levin became a federal judge. And actually, Carl and Sandy both campaigned when they were like 8 and 10 for John's father. So the friendship goes back that long. And what I would say about Carl Levin, Sandy Levin, John Dingell, is they were public servants. They came from a time when you had a responsibility to give to your community that serving your community was something that was honorable and that they took very seriously and felt that they had a responsibility to it. They weren't afraid to compromise. They talked to everybody, but they also stood up and knew what was right and stood up for what, what was right no matter what the threats were, etc. I, I One day it was a lunch, and, you know, it was a history-loving, except – Lesson, but you were sitting there listening to real history. It was John and Carl and Damon Keith, and then uh, Federal uh, Judge Levin, too, who I don't believe uh, was related, but he had the water case. And these men started talking about the 50s and the 60s. I don't know that I was even born when some of these stories were happening. And they were talking about communism and the real threat of communism and civil rights. and how, But standing up to uh, some of the things that were being said, how people were being threatened during the McCarthy days. And both the Levins and Dingles had had crosses burnt on their lawns. I, he, 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 these are the things we read about in history books. They lived it, and yet they were never afraid to stand up for what was right. And I, I just remember the great friendship of John and Carl, who both worked on so many issues that impacted Michigan. I mean, Carl's fingerprints are all over the city of Detroit. He loved Detroit. He never forgot where he came from. He was a Detroiter. All his life, and when he finished serving, he came home every weekend. And when he finished serving, came back, lived there, been at the Levin Center, still, uh, you know, still living in Detroit and wanting to take those vacant buildings and turn them into something, working the riverfront, fighting for the TACOM Center in Warren, John and Carl working on. Uh, The the Detroit River, the Great Lakes, the International Wildlife Refuge, the battlefield in Monroe, but up north, too. I mean, they never stopped, and yet they were such down-to-earth. Carl Levin was the most down-to-earth, humble man. I can remember (laughs) his rumpled suits, my having to say, Carl, you've got a huge ketchup (laughs) stain, and the glasses, the glasses at the end of his nose.
1: Yeah yeah I mean there the, there are so many things about Carl that uh, for me were definitive in in terms of the idea of public service and statesmanship uh, and and compromise in in the interview that we just played that I had with Carl in March, which was the last time I talked to him, uh, we talked so much about that art of getting things done. By figuring out how to get the opposition to go along with what what you wanted, and sometimes you had to give up something that uh, that you didn't want to give up, but you had to be able to see the higher purpose of what you were getting done. And and of course, both John Dingell and Carl Levin uh, were were masters masters at uh,
2: They also didn't give up on principles that they believed in.
1: That's right. And
2: and they, you know, this was a John statement, but it's so true of both of them, that God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. (laughs) They knew how to listen. They knew how to develop relationships. And yet Carl Levin was as committed to justice and accountability. I mean, his oversight how he did oversight and holding people accountable and not letting them lie not letting them default people harm people i mean he just he brought principles to the work that he did every day and he, he there so much that he did and what he's done still lives with all of us in our communities and Generations to come are going to benefit from the many contributions he's made throughout the state of Michigan, and they won't even know that Carl Levin helped get it done. Hmm.
1: So, so I, I want to just read a list of people that we've lost, political giants that we've lost here in Michigan over the last several years. Of course, John Dingell, John Conyers, Damon Keith, L. Brooks Patterson, and now Carl Levin. Um I, I can't think of a stretch of time, at least not in my lifetime, when so much of the foundation I guess of public service and statesmanship in this state has has been subtracted so dramatically that when so much loss has kind of piled on itself uh, and, and repeated it over and over. I, I, I want to have you spend just a little time talking about what it means to lose so many people who defined our politics here in Michigan in such a short amount of time.
2: Well, they were, you know, I loved Brooks Patterson. I loved every one of the people uh, that you just named, but people would be surprised how close I was to Republicans as sure. I Uh, you know, obviously it was closer to John and Carl, but Brooks Patterson was a good friend. These were people that cared about Southeast Michigan. They cared about the communities that they lived in. They were honest, they were straightforward, and they mentored the next generation. They weren't interested in headlines. They weren't interested in a fight for the sake of a fight. They wanted to protect our communities. They wanted to makes them better, and they knew they had to work across the aisle. They knew that relationships mattered, and they brought the next generation along. And I think what we need is for their stories to inspire young people, for people to study the lessons of their public service, and we need to find a way that we can help their stories teach others and inspire people the public service is a good thing. We demonize our public servants now. Going into public service is hard. People are mean. They would rather uh, just be vicious and tear you apart than really um, try to get something done. And these were, know, they're all men, the names that you just read. There are a lot of good women that are in following along with them, and men, but We've got to remember that we're here to help each other, that we're part of a community. We have a responsibility to each other. We need to respect each other, and civility matters, too. Hmm.
1: We're talking about the legacy of former U.S. Senator Carl Levin, who— Died yesterday at the age of 87. Uh, Carl, of course, served 36 years in the U.S. Senate as a representative here from Michigan. was a former president of the Detroit City Council, uh, somebody who was nothing short of a fixture in local politics in our local community here in southeast Michigan. Uh, We'd love to hear from you uh, what your memories of Senator Carl Levin are and what they will be. Going forward, uh, I, I really believe that uh, people like uh, Carl Levin, people like John Dingell, uh, set templates uh, for future public servants. Uh, they're the p- kind of people who left legacies that I think raised the bar of judgment and standards when it comes to public service in our community. Uh, are you somebody who is maybe going to judge future public servants By those standards, uh, call and tell us how you carry these legacies forward uh, in your life. As always, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll try to work you into... Our conversation, Ed, on Twitter says, Without Carl, Selfridge Air Force Base would have closed in the 1980s. He got on the Military Appropriations uh, Committee and fought to keep it open. That is absolutely true. Tom on Twitter says, The first political campaign I ever worked on was Levin's in 74 or 76. Great man. Uh, let's go to the phones here. Let's go to Ed in Detroit. Ed, um, welcome to the a show.
3: A sad day for all of us.
1: Okay. Okay. Uh,
3: I uh, recalled when I heard that uh, Carl Levin had died that I've had the honor in my life of meeting three men of Michigan, Bill Hart and Carl Levin, who in their lifetime were called the conscience of the Senate, and John Dingell, who was the conscience of the House. Hmm. Like Bill Hart and John Dingell, Carl Levin, through the way he lived his life and served the people of the city and the state, and on our council and in the Senate demonstrated that public service is an honorable calling. May his memory remain evergreen mm.
1: ed uh wonderful, wonderful words and uh, wonderful tribute i uh, I really appreciate really appreciate you uh calling and and sharing those sentiments uh debbie that those are the kind of words that I think I am going to hear a lot over the next few days and weeks about about Carl Levin. This is how people across the political spectrum and uh, across the geographic uh, territory of the state, I mean, this is how so many people think of of Carl Levin.
2: He was just, he was a man of principle, he, but he was so real and so down-to-earth. He just was a great man. Michigan lost... Um, great
1: man last night. Yeah. Okay, uh, Debbie Dingle. Uh, uh, actually, I'm going to go back to the phones here. I want to get Dave from Clinton Township into the into the conversation again. Dave, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, uh, thank you. Hey. I love your show, and I love Carl Levin. Um, my wife and I were at the Joint Symphony Orchestra uh, in the balcony seats. Uh, I had had it for tickets for a few years, so I'd worked down to just about the, the the balcony, the first or second row of the balcony, and uh, it got to intermission, and I heard uh, uh, Sandy Levin and his uh, and uh, he he was he, he wasn't a congressman then. Uh, holler hey Dave, what how are you doing? And it was the Carl Levin family. Uh, the whole they were celebrating his birthday, and they came to the DSO. They were in the nosebleed seats. Had to be twenty. Twenty rows above above the uh, the, the, the dress circle, um, and they were uh, they were they were having a celebration, and just like the Levin family and and most most of the the people that I admire, uh, he didn't use his he didn't use his authority to get the best seats in the house, which you know he could have done, a, a United States senator, uh, and and a congressman. Um, uh, sitting together with their family there was eight or nine of them the family all together and wow. and and they they sat in the nosebleed seats and enjoyed the concert <laughs> uh, just like my wife and I did and uh, they paid the, they paid the the, the the poor man's price and I I'll I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll I'll never forget that I've I've told told Andy that story um, yeah. and and you, they forget uh, they're regular people and they act right. like regular no, people. That, we're uh, not used uh, to that world we're now. Uh,
1: uh, certainly not anymore, uh, Dave and, and that phrase, regular people That's certainly how Carl and, uh, and, and how former Congressman Sander Levin His brother, uh, think of themselves uh, uh, and, and Debbie Dingle, I, I know you know That that is a, a sort of trademark of the Levin family
2: Nope, they are and Can't forget how much they love the Detroit Tigers either yeah. And they go to those Tiger games. They went and started <laughs> going to baseball games as young kids, and there was no stronger supporter of the old Tiger Stadium than Carl Levin. So yeah. you've got to remember all of that, too. There are a lot of good stories that make you smile.
1: Yeah. Okay, Debbie Dingle, it is always great to talk with you. Of course, good this is a sad to you, occasion. Especially about to a
2: man we both loved. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we are going to talk with Jim Townsend, who is the director of the Levin Center at the Wayne State University Law School. The Levin Center is a part of Carl Levin's legacy that I don't think a lot of people necessarily know a lot about. We're going to learn more about why he established that center, what it does and what it will do now in the future, now that Carl Levin is no longer with us. Stay with us, and stay with us on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number here. Tell us your memories of Carl Levin and uh, the legacy that the Levin family leaves here in southeast Michigan. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
3: WDET is your place for open dialogue.
4: The music you love.
3: Real news and in-depth analysis.
4: And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit.
3: 101.9 WDET is your public radio station.
1: You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're remembering the legacy of former U.S. Senator Carl Levin today. He passed away yesterday at the age of 87, uh, but leaves behind a really tremendous legacy of public service and statesmanship, 36 years in the U.S. Senate The record for someone serving in the US Senate from the state of Michigan. Uh, We want to hear from you about your memories of Carl Levin, the things that stand out about his career, the things that you'll carry forward uh, now that we don't have him uh, anymore. Uh, Give us a call, 313 577 1019. That's 313 577 1019. Uh, You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation that way. Uh, Joining me now is somebody who is a big part of the legacy that Carl Levin leaves behind. Uh, Jim Townsend is the director of the Levin Center at Wayne State University Law School. Jim, welcome to Detroit Today.
4: Stephen, thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Yeah. So uh, first, I want to extend condolences to you as well, Jim, uh, on Carl's passing. I know how close the two of you were. I know how important it was to him that uh, you are running the Levin Center uh, at Wayne State Law, and so I can only imagine how how tough today is.
4: Well, it, it is tough indeed uh, on on me and on so many people. You know, beginning with with the Levin family. Um, for me, I you know I lost a role model, a mentor. Um, a chairman, you know, of, of my, of the organization I, I'm, I'm honored to direct and I lost a friend. And, um, you know, I didn't grow up in Michigan. I, I, I learned about Senator Levin when I was working in Congress more than two decades ago. And he became a role model for me then, uh, because of his commitment to fact finding and to upholding the truth and, and making government work through transparency and oversight. And uh, I tried to, you know, follow that example for the rest of my career, and and I was fortunate enough to be elected to the state legislature. And and I I really tried to um, channel Carl Levin as much as I could because of the way he approached the job of public service. And uh, I even became nearsighted. I don't think that was because of Carl, but I became (laughs) nearsighted and started – Letting my uh, reading glasses slip down my nose sometimes when I
1: was
4: (laughs) (laughs) when I was in a hearing room, you know, asking questions. Uh, So, yeah, today is a really tough, (laughs) tough day. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So. So I want you to talk about the Levin Center at Wayne State Law and how important that part of Carl Levin's legacy was to him and how important it is uh, to this community here in southeast Michigan.
4: Well, the Levin Center was formed by Carl and um, several members of his staff uh, with the great help of of people at Wayne State, uh, uh, Jocelyn Benson in particular, who was Dean of the Law School, a a great role, as well as President Wilson, in bringing the Levin Center to Wayne State. And what the Levin Center does is champion uh, bipartisan fact-based oversight, meaning high-quality fact-finding and oversight by Congress and by state legislatures across the country. And we do that by conducting workshops and doing research and advocacy, both to educate lawmakers about what their job is, which, which is to educate the public and themselves about what's true about really important issues, um, but also to get the public to know that something you said, Stephen, earlier, uh, that, you know, we should be looking at our political leaders and evaluating whether they're upholding the facts. Uh, and boy, these days, I, I mean, it's, it's just urgent that, that we carry on Senator Levin's legacy by all of us asking our political leaders are you upholding, you know, I like to call it the fact-based public square, you know, the place where we go and hold political debates that are supposed to be based on a common set of facts. And that's really fallen apart in our country, as as you know. And we really, we we have to hold our, our elected leaders accountable because they're the ones, you know, things get put out on Facebook and, and Twitter and, you know, other media outlets. But it's when a member of Congress says something that's not true that it really takes off and becomes something that really damages our public, our public square. Hmm. And the only way we're going to stop that is is if people across the country start to evaluate and and hold accountable their elected leaders for upholding the truth.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, it's a it's a wonderful idea, right? Uh, the idea of trying to yank. The trajectory of public service back to the idea of truth in a time when lying is not just pervasive, uh, but so powerfully convincing to so many people. Uh, the, the, the art of misinformation has really matured uh, tremendously uh, in, the last, in the last few years, especially. And the idea of setting up a center to say, hey, let's, uh, let's make truth. Uh, sort of a paragon of the way that we we judge our public officials and and hold them accountable is uh, is a, a really remarkable uh, idea. Um, well, we're, so- we're, Stephen, thank you. We're so proud to, to
4: have established this in Detroit. Uh, we do have a, a small operation in Washington, D.C. as well. It does work with Congress. But but we're trying to do this around the country. So, you know, in legislatures all over America, we're offering our, our assistance, and, and what we do is we help these lawmakers uh, see that they have a duty to do good, in-depth oversight, so that government is held accountable, and so that facts uh, are placed at the forefront of our debates. And yeah, we don't—we you know, don't have to agree on every fact or every solution, certainly. But what Carl did in his career. Was work across the aisle on the process of gathering information and doing mm-hmm. oversight. And his, some of his best friends in the Senate were, were Republicans. Uh, John McCain, John, John Warner, uh, Bill Cohen, I mean, a long list, Norm Coleman, a long list of, of uh, Tom Coburn, probably the most conservative member of the Senate while, while Carl served, was one of his closest friends. And actually he came on and became, uh, a member of the board of the advisory board of the Levin center and they worked together and and they really became friends. And it was because they worked together, Um, you know, socializing and, you know, after hours is an important part of of politics, but what's most important really is, is that you have a commitment to certain values and, and and it's those values that we're trying to uphold and uh, educate lawmakers about and educate the public about so that, again, as I said, when it's time to evaluate whether a public servant is really upholding and and doing work that's in your interest, you look at whether that person's commentary, whether the things they say on the floor of the legislature, uh, really hold up to scrutiny and are true. And if not, then, you know, they should be held accountable for that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Jim uh, I want to get a couple of calls in here. I know we're really uh, late on time. I always do this and and uh, when we've got really emotional shows uh, going on. Um Liz in Detroit. I I've only got a minute left, but I wanted to, to make sure we we heard from you. Hello. Hi Liz, go ahead.
2: Hi, yeah. I was um a neighbor of of Carl's uh, a few years ago and I remember just trying to balance, um, not being too awestruck, (laughs) but, um, he he made it very easy. Um, just very, um, down to earth, um, always had his Wayne state law hat on. So I could always recognize him even from afar. I'd be like, Oh, there's Carl. (laughs) If he was walking or coming home, even, um, just a great family. Um, and just a great legacy.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, Liz, I'm glad you called uh, and shared that story. Uh, I want to go to Gene in Detroit quickly. Gene, I've only got 30 seconds left.
3: Uh, Just wanted to mention, Stephen, what a great champion he was for fair housing and for the rights of affordable housing for people everywhere in America. And I hope we invoke that memory and think about that this weekend.
1: Yeah, uh, Amen, uh, Gene. He absolutely was one of the real champions for uh, fair and affordable housing. Uh, thank no you, question. No question for your call. Okay, Jim Townsend, uh, head of the 11 Center. Thank you for joining us, and uh, thank you. Go forth and do this great work that uh, Carl helped establish. Thank you so much. All right, that's going to do it for us today. I'll be back on Monday. Hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.